Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about uh, all things digital, <laughs> so digital media production. Uh, so add your questions there. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to talk about carnets. Many of you probably don't know what a carnet is, but if you carry a bunch of gear back and forth between different countries, you'll learn quickly. <laughs> so, so we're going to talk to the specialists. Um, this is um, we have specialists from Boomerang. I have used them for years, decades, uh, or over a decade, and um, and they are just the best. So we're going to bring them in and answer your questions about getting gear in and out of countries um, seamlessly. So so um, definitely stay tuned and think about the questions that you have about that. Uh, we, we sent out uh, some links uh, in the email so you can look and do a little bit more research, but ask those questions, be ready to ask those questions for the second hour. And uh, for that first hour, make sure to throw your questions into Mukana um, and ask the questions there and vote on those questions so we know what order you'd like us to answer them in. Let's go ahead and jump into those questions. Robert, what do we have? Uh, thank you, Alex. Uh, we begin with Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana. Indiana House Bill 1167 requires government live streaming in Indiana. Thoughts? Go ahead, Courtney. I think it's a good idea because it, it kind of improves transparency on the uh, wheels of government. Uh, the bill, I don't know if it's passed yet, but the proposal says that uh, uh, governing bodies of the state and local agencies, excluding state-supported colleges and universities, are to provide a publicly accessible platform, live transmission of public meetings, and an archive and copies of the transmissions with links to the meeting agencies. So I think it's great because it uh, exposes the, you know, behind what used to be done in the smoke-filled room of politicians, you know, back rooms of politics and deal-making. It kind of brings that out into the light if they, if everyone in that meeting knows that they are being streamed live, um, you know, it would uh, expose a lot of stuff and maybe clean politics up a little bit. So I, I would be in favor of it if I were an Indianian. Go ahead, Bill. I generally agree with that. Uh, I do think there is one concern that, uh, which is that legislators will start learning to play to the cameras rather than play to their constituents or whatever, and they will, uh, you know, I, I can see some of the worst of the people in that industry going, hey, I can build a national profile by doing something outrageous and getting a lot of news headlines because everybody's watching. So if, if we can tamp that down and get to the people where people are still doing their legislating and just the cameras are watching, it becomes second nature, then great. Yeah, I think it's I think it's good. I think it's a good it's a good thing to do because I, I think that it's important that people are able to not have to go somewhere but can simply just turn this on what is going on. I think this is also the beginning, whether the government does it or not. Once they start live streaming it, this gets back into some of the uses that we've talked about with AI, with the ability to pull those videos in, process those videos, summarize those videos, translate those videos. All those things are going to happen relatively seamlessly, and I think people will start experimenting with Indiana. But um, you know, as far as government transparency, I think it's going to um, make a huge difference. Now, next question. John Fisher from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma asks, is there a way to make virtual cameras like OBS Virtual Cam show up in Apple Keynote when adding live video to a slide? Only physically connected and AirPlay devices are showing up in the dropdown. Go ahead, Jason. This is a tricky one. Um, there's a way to do it with local host and um, 
if you add it to media, um, if you get a URL that is localhost, you can add it to media, and I think that would work as a as a live input, but it's not actually going to be called live video. And I, so it doesn't. I guess the uh, so we just out of curiosity, it doesn't show siphon. So you know, a siphon uh, handoff doesn't work on a Mac or in. I don't. Keynote? I don't think it does. No. Mm. Okay, that's interesting. We should probably make some requests. <laughs> so that it seems like something we would want to do. Uh, next question. Eric Hers from Hartford, Connecticut is asking, I have a Blackmagic ATEM Mini Pro with USB output at, to a PC as a Zoom virtual camera plus live streaming output to a broadcast server. How should I add redundancy to each element of the production workflow? You know, at, at this scale, it's hard. Go ahead, Courtney. Sorry, I was fighting my way back to the screen. Um, yeah, I was thinking maybe the Blackmagic web interface, you could run the uh, HDMI output, uh, program output out of the uh, Blackmagic, uh, I mean, out of the mini, ATEM mini, and run that through the web interface. And that would give you another USB output of your switcher. Um, and a, web inter a second web interface, you could go to a second streaming uh, uh location, streaming server, to broadcast as well. So you'd have at least one level of backup. However, if the ATEM goes down, then everything goes down. So there's that. You're, you're not completely covered with a dual you know, dual backup. And the only way to do that would be to, to split all of your video inputs into your ATEM switcher and have two ATEM minis online. That would be a full backup, but uh, that would be kind of tricky to do. Yeah, you could, you definitely could do that. I mean, I think that one of the things you keep on looking at where at certain scales, you have to look at uh, where adding redundancy will actually destabilize the system. So you have to be careful of not adding, you know, in a with a larger one, what we would say is, I mean, oftentimes we've had routers and then we cross route those um, to make those, you know, to, to be able to to have that redundancy built in. And then we'll use patch bays on the back end to tie the routers together so that if we needed to jump from one router to another, we could do it relatively seamlessly. Obviously, we a lot of times we have two switchers in production. And, um, and so that, but with the minis, it's hard because you just don't have a lot of IO. So I think that one of the things we have been, requesting, I don't think it's there quite there yet, is the idea of having something like MixEffect Pro be able to talk to two switchers at one time. So it can send out those commands to both switchers. Um, now, if you did, you, you could do something like that most likely in Companion right now where you'd have it send off two, two instructions to two different IPs to basically keep those switchers in sync as you're going through it. But as soon as you start doing something complex, that's going to be hard. <laughs> like it's, you know, and now with those switchers, you're probably not, they're probably not that, you're not going to be doing that many complex moves. So it should be okay. Um, as far as now, what we do for streaming is we're, even with this show, this is two um, of the elemental links. They're each getting a signal um, and then they're sending primary backup into AWS. And then that's sending to a primary backup inside of YouTube. So those are the kind of, the, that's how that's stacked there. Um, and, um, so anyway, so those are the, uh, uh, those, that's how we stack those there themselves. Um, that should work. And then of course, virtual cameras would be another PC <laughs> if you wanted total backup. So you could build two parallel systems that worked. I think that you'd probably be destable. I think if you're going to go that, that route, you probably need to start building up a bigger kit. Now, what I would do, 
Um, and what I do often is keep things in a bag. So I would have an extra camera, an extra Mac, uh, black uh, mini, you know, mini pro and have them configured the same way. I can swap something in and out, but I think I'd more be more likely to have a, what we call a crikey box with uh, some of the extra hardware in it that I need to make a quick change. And I would know how to do that. I think I would do that over building this because I think that what we're talking about right now would actually create enough complexity that it would probably reduce the stabil overall stability of the system. Go ahead, John. You know, you could run a PC with a like a black magic card in and out and then loop that through the ATM and have that as a backup, like running VMIX or OBS as a, as a failsafe. But that would be just another, but something is still, it's still something still in the string. So if one of those things failed, you'd still lose the other one. So you kind of have to split at the cameras to make that work. And again, I think that you'd be building up a pretty complex pipeline that would probably be harder to wield and be more likely to have errors um, than just having the backups in a, you know, in a box that you know how to use. The One of the biggest things with stability is using the the, the hardware often. That's one of the reasons that I like what I'm doing here is I'm constantly using that software so that uh, you can see what the anomalies are and see if there's anything going on in a controlled environment. Using it outdoors all the time and <laughs> putting it in bad situations is not going to make it more stable. But but using it a lot so that you understand what, what's going on and you see any kind of anomalies is really useful. A lot of times the, the stuff for event producers, if they're not doing enough events, they are... Um, they don't know or they haven't seen an anomaly that's starting to arise uh, within something because they used it two months ago and then another time and the next month and another time. When you're using it every day or two or three times a week, um, you have a much better sense of what the trends are. Uh, next question. From Douglas Carmichael, I read that voiceover animation work is allowed during SAG-AFTRA strike. Without a final soundtrack, how would the animators properly sync the character mouth movements to the script? Would a tool like MetaCumin be used? Uh, go ahead, Jason. A really easy, old-school way to do this would be Adobe Character Animator. Um, that, that basically just graphs from your face and pulls from video. Um, sure, there's a better way, but that's, that's the simple way. Good, Bill. Yeah, the strike hasn't affected the animation industry very much at all. And as a matter of fact, actors who are covered under the contract terms that are on strike can actually work in um, voiceover now, not for under the theatrical contract. So if it's a movie or something like that, then you are theoretically prohibited. If you're working on something like an audiobook, there is no preclusion. That's why some actors are moving over to do that. The sync part of it is... Uh, just going to work exactly as normal because anybody who has to do that kind of work um, outside of those contracts will do it the same way they were doing it before. And anybody inside those contracts will simply not be doing any work. So the syncing doesn't matter to them at all. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, this frequently happens in animated stuff, uh, even when there's not a strike, is they they won't have cast a certain character yet or decided on a certain character. And, and since the lead time on animation is so long, they have to get started. You know, they've designed the character, but they haven't settled on a voice yet. A lot of times the animator will do a temp voice and they will record all the dialogue by the animator themselves doing the part. Uh, and they will actually video that animator and they will do the animation based on the animator's uh, you know, reaction and voice. And then later when they hire an actor, they will come in and do ADR and replace the animator's original voice like they do in a lot of movies where they replace a character's voice because they don't like the character's voice uh, with a sync ADR session where they... It's tougher for the actor because they can't put their own spin on things, you know, and they may reanimate some stuff once they cast the thing with a, a, a real actor. 
but you know, if they're still negotiating contracts or something and they have to get that sequence finished, they'll animate to a temp voice and then they'll have to match the, uh, the actor that they're eventually hired to, to mount it uh, in post-production. They'll sync it up. And I think that one of the reasons they want to make sure the actors can do this is, a, is that long pipeline because a lot of times the voices are recorded before the animation. And so if they're doing them before the animation, uh, they, then it's another year of animating. So I think that there's a, a concern that the effect of, of having someone not able to record the voice tracks is something that's a, you know, a year out um, sometimes. And so that becomes really problematic as well. Um, it's going to be really interesting. I, I think that the the dates that are Labor Day is being kicked around as a point of no return. Like everything starts to really change. I mean, it's everything's uncomfortable right now, and the industry starts to shift pretty hard um, after after Labor Day. So we'll see how long this lasts. Uh, next question. Andy Korkendorfer from Viera, Florida, is asking for thoughts on Stand With Production Freelance Group unionizing with IATSE. Group includes TV commercial production assistants, assistant production supervisors, production supervisor, line producers. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Bill. These are some of the specific positions that I'm a little concerned with because they are the most likely to have these new uh, AI-driven things kind of affect them. So it, it wouldn't surprise me that one of the reasons there's a push for more union protection in there is because they see the potential for ChatGPT and, and uh, things like that to kind of get in the way of what they're doing. More automated tools there are, the more less need there is for production assistance and those kind of things. So it's just something of concern. Yeah, this just just happened, I think, over the last couple of days. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I haven't read uh, what the deets are yet, but uh, <clears throat> it's interesting. The commercial contract is a different contract than the ones that, that people are striking now. Uh, so the commercial uh, uh, people that are, um, well, union members, IETSC members, is not on strike at all right now, but uh, they could observe, you know, the SAG and Writers Guild picket lines. But uh, it's a separate contract for commercial production with IETSC, so it's negotiated separately than the general contract. And a lot of times, you know, uh, production assistants are the most exploited people on the set. They're usually working for 100, 100 and a quarter a day flat. And so they may end up working a 12-hour day for $125. So uh, it's about time they unionized. And assistant production supervisors, I don't know if that's been a union position in the past, uh, but I guess not. And line producers, uh, producers are normally members of the PGA, not the IATSC, so Producers Guild. Uh, so I'm not sure why they would come under this particular group. But, you know, any group can can form an IATSC, uh, a separate IATSC uh, group underneath the umbrella of the international. Uh, we had a mechanics local, semi uh, technicians group in Austin, which worked on films and video back in the uh 70. So uh, it is possible. And so I'm glad they're organizing to finally get some uh, uh, reimbursement for all those production assistants that are working long, long, long hours for little, little, little pay. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, UPerfect has introduced the UGame J5 17.3-inch portable 4K monitor, which has a 1,500 to 1 contrast ratio, compared to their previous monitor, which has only 1,000 to 1. Would a higher contrast ratio be helpful for editing or mostly for grading and color work? Go ahead, Jason. 
I actually think a higher contrast ratio by itself is, is not useful for either. Uh, higher contrast ratio is, is the difference between the darkest dark and the brightest bright. So maybe outdoor visibility, but unless you're going to add color accuracy, uh, my immediate thought is no. Yeah, it's, I'm not sure what you, it's a, it's a lot of a cost for um, a portable monitor. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I didn't see what the price is, but it, it is uh, one of those uh, portable mon. Oops, sorry. Ah, hello. I need that backup switcher. Uh, <laughs> it is that portable, uh, you know, folding uh, cover portable monitor, which I'm looking at one right now. Uh, and usually, you know, they're LED backlights, so they're not uh, AMOLED. Um, so getting that high contrast ratio doesn't really mean much. And a lot of times they lie about the, you'll see a million to one listed as the contrast ratio. So I would take uh, the 1500 to one with a grain of salt. It depends on the angle and if it's an IPS panel or not. Uh, usually they almost always are, but um, it's, that's a decent contrast ratio if it's true, but I doubt it's true. Here you go, Bill. Yeah, the thing that's uh, of interest to me, if I was working in a shop, I would not care about this at all. As a one-man band, sometimes I have noticed that better tools means that you notice things. If I'm editing something and I notice that there's a contrast issue or something else, that only an HDR-capable monitor that does a good job of showing me what I'm working on, then it's helpful. So uh, I think the, the one-man band type, as these things become less and less costly, it's better to have a better monitor so that once you school yourself to watch for things like contrast um, and color accuracy, you have a tool that does all of that, not just one thing. I think that the issue is is that they're what they're showing in a lot of the the demos on their on their page is that you're putting your palettes on your main screen and your uh, and then you're using their screen as the color screen. Um, and I would be hard pressed to say that their screen is going to be more accurate than my MacBook Pro. <laughs> you know, like so, so if you have, it depends on what you have, but they're showing, I think, a MacBook Pro there. And I'm kind of like, well, I don't know if I would do that. Um, and, and so I think that the, the Apple screens tend to be very accurate. Um, and so the, uh, so I, so I, I think I'd have a hard time. And I, I think the problem is spending a lot of, I don't spend a lot on extra screens. I have a couple screens that are color accurate that I spend money on, but I don't, like my second screen on a laptop would not be the thing that I would probably, unless it, you know, unless it's in my office and it's a really nice one. Um, I, I just I feel like I'd be hard pressed to spend extra on it. It does look like a nice monitor if you're traveling and you want a, you know, a a, a high end monitor. It's 4K, 60 hertz. Um, it's got you know, it, it is bright. Um, it looks like it's well made. So I mean, if you just want a really nice portable monitor, I think it works. It's just it's pretty pricey for what it does. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, it has a high contrast ratio, supposedly, but it's only 400 nits. Uh, so it's not uh, super HDR. Uh, yeah, it's on HDR. It's kind of HDR, but it's not really. Yeah, and it doesn't, <laughs> I don't, th and I think it's an edge-lit backlight. Uh, yeah. So I don't think it's local local dimming to get the high contrast ratio that you will find in better displays. You know, we'll have many, many LEDs as a backlight that are, have local dimming and they give you a much higher contrast ratio. The, the, the website's not totally done either. It has an enjoy the vivid picture and it shows how great 1,000 to 1 to 700 to 1 is. But underneath it says 1,500 to 1. <laughs> so, so it's like they're not quite, they might want to finish that, that image, uh, at least change the numbers. Um, all right. Describe question. it as HDR-ish. Yeah, HDR-ish, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, all right, next, next question. 
Alok Lopez, Waterman, Brevard, North Carolina. How do you deal with incessant noise, 60 cycle and others on a ClearCom intercom system? It's mind numbing. Um, so uh, some of that is nulling. So you have to null that, you know, null that system out. So someone has to, you know, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, there are devices that you called humbuckers that you can put on that isolate the ground uh, from any uh, microphone inputs. Uh, ClearCom systems, since you're a lot of times people are plugging in these things to power supplies at different parts of the building so they don't have the common ground between them. So they're going to generate 60 hertz hum because of ground loops that happen between uh, cable interconnected intercom systems. This is another good reason to go with wireless intercoms because you won't have ground loop issues. Then you only have to deal with the, the shields on your uh, headset cable to the wireless transmitter of your ClearCom system. Uh, then if you get some hum, otherwise, yeah, anytime you have a wired intercom system, it's gonna pick up a lot of uh, extraneous hum. Okay, good, Bill. Yeah, you can never tell how a building's wired. So whenever I heard that on a ClearCom or something like that, the first thing I do is take the ClearCom base station, run an extension cord or stinger to it, and see if I can find a different plug that makes the hum go away. Sometimes it's as simple as that because people wire buildings in the weirdest ways possible. You just want to get on the same ground like... Yeah, because basically the, the voltage is the voltage always wants to go home, and uh, if it finds out that the that your that your comm system is the fastest way home, it's going to it's going to use it, um, and so the um, so I think that the uh, the. The big, one of the big things that does create buzz at the beginning is someone nulling. And, and then what happens is if they add an analog headset to that system after they've nulled, they got to null it again. Like you have to have the entire system in place before you null the system. So um, a lot of times when you hear some of this buzz, it's because they have added, they keep on adding or subtracting, which which changes um, what's going on. And so they have to, um, you have to re-null it every time you change the number of belt packs if you're going to really avoid a, some of that. The other side of that is, for instance, using things that are more IP-based. So for smaller kits, we use Dante. Um, so for the smaller kits, up to about eight belt packs. Um, I, I find that using a lot of belt packs um, on, the, on Dante is hard because... Um, what a comm system does for you is that you don't think about it when you when you use it, but it's building all these mixed minuses for you. You know, you you minus yourself, and when you so you don't hear yourself come back through the system. When you have a uh, when you do it yourself with Dante, you realize, oh, I got to build a mixed minus for every person. So so there are some boxes that Studio Technologies makes that makes that a little easier. We also use mixers. Like sometimes we'll dedicate a whole mixer to like an X32 to just managing mixed minuses for a Dante comm system. Um, so those are things that can be done, but it can get a little difficult and tricky because now you're building groups inside of that as well. Um, so it really turns into a, you know, if you're not going to change it very often, it, it works pretty well. Um, and so, but when we're at four to eight belt packs, uh, Dante makes it great. It's perfectly clean. Uh, we use the studio technology belt packs. There's two, two channel and four channel, um, and they work great. Um, so that's, that's one of the things to think about. Analog is just, um, you know, they're, they're slowly working their way out of the system, but they're still in, you know, they're still in a hand, in, in a handful of productions that we see. Um, next question. From Douglas Carmichael, how do you use a single stream URL on YouTube and two redundant input sources. 
Yeah, so what happens in YouTube is they have a primary and a backup ingest point. So they, you know, so while it's only one video that goes out, you can, you can, you have one that's backup, you know, a B, a B, uh, you know, usually is what it's called, I think, or at the end of the URL. So it's the same stream key, but it's two different URLs connected to that, that stream key. And then that's going to put both those in. Now, primarily, it's going to work on your primary input. Um, and if that loses, uh, if it becomes degraded, it will switch over to B. Now, you have to remember that it doesn't do that at the ingest. So it may, it, it may not, there may be something else in the pipeline. So you could end up with a percentage of your audience on B and a percentage of your audience on A. Um, and the other thing is, is if you fail somewhere in the middle, you may end up in a situation um, where it switches over to B and you think you're on A. So one of the things that we have to be careful of is making sure that those two streams are identical. Now, if you want it to be completely seamless, you need to take those two encoders and do what we call output locking. So this locks there the generation of those frames perfectly. And when that happens, without that, you'll see it wait for the next segment. <laughs> so it'll go, it'll go, oh, I lost the feed and now I'm going to jump to the next one. Um, it, when they're output locked, typically it'll, it'll do a seamless and, and the viewer will never know that something popped, uh, popped out. So, so um, we do that pretty often. And again, this show, for instance, is primary backup to AWS and then AWS. So we have two encoders that are encoding to AWS. And then on the way out, it's sending out two streams to, to YouTube. So that's, that's how we manage that. Um, next question. Roy Myers from Bel Air, Maryland is asking, what do you use to back up your iPhone? I've tried iMazing. There are other tools. What's your favorite? Go Jason. Amazing is definitely the best one for for use and and playing around with with getting good output. Um, yeah, the, the, there really isn't anything better than iMazing. I, what do you back up on your on your iPhone? <laughs> I'm just curious. Like, what, what do people back? What up? do I back up on? I my don't back iPhone? up anything. I, I I don't I don't back up my iPhone. I, I don't I don't. My iPhone is in iCloud. I mean, it's backed up in iCloud. So my iPhone is in iCloud. I actually I use Mac OS to do a hard backup because mm. that will back up the entire secure enclave. So you, mm. you have to have another set of, of backup um, in order to fully restore things like your health kit. Um, mm. Personally, I don't, but I've used iMazing, for example, for, for attorneys where they need to look and capture, you know, a secure PDF of text message exchange right. and they need a good chain of evidence for that. And that I have used iMazing to do. Got it. Good, Robert. Uh, I use it to back up photos. Uh, and if I traveling or something and I want to take a whole chunk of photos and put it in a particular folder and then load it into Lightroom, it's a little convenient that way and I can use it as a project. So you use iMazing instead of photos or you use iMazing to just pull them all off? I pull them all off and then get them into my folder structure that I put into Lightroom. Got it. Got it. Okay. Very good. Uh, next question. From Matt Halvertson, Brookings, whoops, South Dakota. Someone asked me how to replace a background in a picture quickly so they could print the picture out from his phone while manning a booth at the county fair. I suggested a projector as the background instead of green screen. Any suggestions? Good, Courtney. Well, I wouldn't use a projector because if you're at a county fair, you don't really have a lot of control over the light. And um, so you might want to use a 60-inch monitor if you can haul it and set it up in the uh, behind the person uh, in the booth and then put whatever background you want to on the monitor. Uh, as long as the monitor is big enough to cover the background, that would be a little bit better. And uh, But if you're outdoors, that's going to be even problematic because then you have to deal with reflections off the surface of the monitor and so on. 
in which case, you know, you're going, going back to green screen. So you'd have to find a green screen program that runs on that iPhone uh, in order to do the composite uh, from a green screen. Um, you guys that know, maybe if it's an iPhone, I don't know that much about iPhone apps that are available, but I'm sure there must be one that will let you put a different background in behind you and uh, key out a green screen. Hey, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, in fact, on iPhones now, if you just press and hold on the background, they've built intelligence in the last couple of updates where it'll determine the background and the subject. That's part of the intelligence now with AI. And then you can remove the background. You can copy the background out as a separate thing, pull it over to an iPad or an iPhone or a computer or whatever, paste that in against a different background. It should be pretty easy. So iOS actually does this really well and really efficiently now. You know, I've been thinking about this problem for a long time. For whatever reason, for me, 15 years, I thought it would be great to have that, exactly what you're talking about. I, I haven't thought about it for the county fair, but I was thinking about it in malls or something else where you can, there's a place in, in, uh, uh, in San Francisco in the wharf that you can go in and take pictures and it's like you hanging, you know, you can go all over San Francisco and, and they've got props. So you can like hang off the end of a, of a cable car and you can be standing on the bridge and you can do all these other fun things. And they just shoot you um, in front of uh, green screen with the props in front. So that it, what sells it a lot of times is the thing you're holding on to really looks real. So that, that makes it look a lot better. So that's something to think about as well. Um, but I've often thought that it'd be really fun to have a background that you could, uh, I would still use probably green screen if I could, if I could control the experience. Um, and then uh, and then be able to have LED lights. And this used to be a lot harder than it is now that would change in color so that it would match your lighting to the background, you know, like so that it would automatically just change the color and angle of all the lights. You know, you could build kind of a dome in the front that would that would kind of light you up for that. And it could be film or 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 video, you know, video or or uh, or still. I think that that'd be a lot of fun. Um, but uh, it is uh, if you can control the light and that means like taking a. What I would probably do is have it be dark, you know, have some kind of tent that you go into that has a background. And in that case, I'd probably use green screen. Otherwise, a monitor is going to work better. If you have it opened, it's going to be impossible to grab that, to grab, do anything, make anything work. Um, vignetting, as said before, is going to be the biggest problem. The projectors just don't work. Go ahead, Jason. Portrait Light Mono in iOS does a decent job of this. I mean, here it is in real time. You know, just you putting gotta, me against black, but that's right. that's only half the issue. So who knows? It. Yeah, you got to comp it. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and I would actually avoid doing it on a phone. I'd set up a camera, even if it's you know a, a four-year-old you know, Canon still camera, and hook that up uh, and composite through uh, an A10 Mini or something. So have some equipment there because if people see you just doing it on the phone and the phone is automatically replacing the background with a built-in app, people are going to say, well, why should I pay you 10 bucks to create this picture when I can just do it on my iPhone, you know, yeah, without any extra hardware? So, yeah, I mean, there, there is a problem. Well, and the, the other thing, though, is that you can also, with Canon cameras specifically, you can pull those images off automatically. So you can plug a camera, Canon camera into a computer and have it just fire off. Um, I know that someone's trying to do it. This is probably kind of a fun thing. They have an iPhone. They have a printer. They're like, hey, we can just print these off. It'll be fun. And it, and it might work just fine. Um, again, I'd probably think about them, you know, if you're just doing it kind of a... If this is kind of a fun thing at a, at a county fair that's part of some other booth or, or something like that, then I would probably, you know, I think the iPhone will work. Um, I think that I, I think you would probably try to find backgrounds. I would try to find backgrounds that just I can 
click and remove with the iPhone tools rather than trying to figure out anything else. Um, if I'm going to keep it this, if I'm if I'm going to make it something that's a fun little trick that that people enjoy, stick with the iPhone tools to just do the to to do that. If you're going to really turn it into something that you want to charge people for, then what I would do is 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 I get a camera. The, the Canon specifically are really good at. You can wire them up to a system that'll just pull those those images off in real time. In fact, they'll fire the camera at the same time. And what you can do there is that you can automate all of that. So you can automate all the compositing process so that you click the photo and the image just comes out the other end. You know, so if you frame it correctly, you won't see it ahead of time. But if you get good at it, you get it framed up on a tripod. You'll just be hitting the photo on the on the camera, and this is how they do um, uh, a lot of the kind of the kids stuff at sport for sports. Is they'll process they can process that stuff either in real time or a little bit later. Um, but you can batch process that, or you can do it in real time where it'll just pass through it. Because if you get the green screen just right, it's a very simple math. You know, you basically average the red and the blue. You subtract those from the green. You build, that's your mat. <laughs> and then you and then you use that to despill it. You then um, you increase the contrast to key it, and uh, and you put the background in, and that's it. You know, and it's it's a really simple. Ma- it's like twenty six lines of code. Not that I've ever done it. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. I actually have an example of this because I did that with one of my uh, Comic-Con portraits. This actually, she's not in that location. I took one of the pictures of her and I just touched her on my iPhone. It did that mat of her. Let me actually zoom into this and composited her against that other photo, which is a clean plate that I had shot. It was pretty remarkably good. It kind of blew me away. I have not done the color balance between the background color and her color. She needs to be retouched. But in terms of an instant key on a phone where she was in a similar busy background, it blew me away. And and it would probably do even better if you gave it a, a basic background that you figured out, like, what is the phone like? You know, like it might be green, it might be something else, but what is the phone like to pull a key from? And that's going to help. And that thing being pretty far behind it, because remember, if you're using a newer phone, newer iPhone, it's using that LiDAR to make some decisions as well. And so, um, you know, you can, making sure that there's a little distance there can help. A quick reminder that, of course, you can ask questions throughout the first hour. So um, if you have more questions for us uh, for the first hour or the second hour, we start talking about shipping gear around, um, go ahead and throw those into Makana. Next question. We continue with Henry Ramos, Yonkers, New York. What's the latest recommendation for budget earphones long enough to reach around my your laptop with mic built in, similar to old wired Apple earphones for clients using bad earbuds and built in mics? Go ahead, Courtney. Now, this is at the risk of being really, really cheap. Uh, I've bought this twice. Uh, these called Kira Baby earbuds. Uh, you get five of them for. $14. Actually, I think they were $10.99 when I bought them last. Uh, and I buy these as disposable. They're actually pretty good. They've got silicone wires on them. They're pretty, really strong. Uh, and they're uh, TRRS type uh, eighth inch uh, wiring. Uh, I mean, uh, eighth inch plug on the end of them. So if you have any phone or computer, which is re- uh, designed for a single plug, plug for headphones and microphone. And the, these are the set of headphones I'm constantly losing these, so this is why I buy them by five at a time. And, you know, I'll leave them in a shirt pocket or something, and they'll go through the laundry. Uh, So I'm not concerned if they're only about three bucks a piece. 
Uh, and this is the one I used when we did Cine Gear, when we're, I was walking around the day before, and everyone's uh, complimented me on the, the quality of the sound of my microphone, which was just a little mic built into this headset uh, as I was walking around Cine Gear. So I don't know what it sounds like because I've never heard the other end of it, but people tell me it sounds quite good. It has a button on it to change, uh, you know, to, to click your uh, media player and turn it on or off or to answer your phone. But the sound of the the headphones sound actually pretty good, and the quality of the uh, the cabling and everything is is quite good for the price. You can't beat you know fourteen dollars for five of them. Go, Jason. No, I can't beat fourteen dollars for five. Anything with a TRRS is is going to do a pretty decent job here. Um, Marshall makes decent ones. Um, the Sennheiser CX. Uh, 80s is is also a decent alternative. They're they're pretty indestructible if you don't lose them. Next question. Adrian Watkins from Wellington, New Zealand writes: Current Zoom setup is separate paths for audio via Mix Pre and video via A10 Mini. Any benefit in combining the audio in via the A10? There is. Uh, one of the things is sync. So it, if, if you go out of your uh, mini or something else directly into the ATEM, your sync will be probably perfect uh, because now it's managing the audio and the video at the same time. Oftentimes the audio is a little bit faster than the video. So if you go through the switcher and, and then you bring the audio in separately, you have to have some way to delay that audio so that it catches back up. And that has a whole effect on our, for instance, the latency of how we talk back and forth. So, so we really try to, are always trying to minimize that. So that is one advantage. Another advantage is if you have audio sources that are coming in over the ATEM that are from different computers, you may want to have your voice mixed into that so that you can talk over those. So let's say you have, you're doing, you're going to play a video, but you want to talk over that video and you want the audio to come out of the computer. You can have both of those going into the ATEM and mixing your audio and your, your, your voice and the, and whatever's playing out together uh, interactively on the ATEM software might be a little bit easier. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, there's a couple of uh, gotchas here. The, uh, if you're bringing audio into the ATEM Mini uh, over the analog inputs, which is the TRS uh, Mini plugs, um, bring it in, you're bringing it in analog that way. And uh, you should probably bring it in at a line level, not microphone level, so you should plug the output of your uh, mix uh, pre uh, line output of the mix pre into the mini plug. And if you come in the analog way, you do have the ability to delay that uh, that audio in the ATEM uh, software. So you can go into the audio section of the ATEM software and adjust the delay up to, I think, 20 or 20 milliseconds or so, so that you can uh, align it back up sync-wise there. But if you do come in through a uh, camera, let's say, with an HDMI port, if you come in digitally over an HDMI signal, which is another way to get audio into your ATEM Mini, uh, you don't have the ability to delay it. So only the analog inputs can be delayed uh, to resynchronize it. But you're less likely to be out of sync if you come in at the camera uh, with the camera's audio input port anyway and come in over the HDMI because then it interlaces the audio into the HDMI signal and sends it over at the same time so they're less likely to get out of sync anyway. Next question. From Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, compare Melee versus the Dell series of tiny computers that run Windows 11 with comparable prices. Courtney, have you used it? Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. I I haven't gotten and looked at any of the Dell minis. Uh, You know, Intel just announced recently they're going to discontinue their NUCs. 
which is kind of disappointing. The NUCs have always been uh, from Intel themselves, have always been kind of a reference design that other, other companies uh, base their many computer designs on. Uh, but I think they're going to stop selling the NUCs as a separate, uh, separately available uh, thing from Intel. So I have not looked at the Dell series of tiny computers, although it is a burgeoning market. It's, uh, you know, for people that just want to, you know, point of sale devices, uh, cash registers, uh, receptionist desks, those kind of, uh, you know, the, the little melee computers, the stick computers work great. You can mount them on a vase mount on the back of the uh, on the back of the monitor and it's a full windows computer. So any kind of accounting software, calendar software, whatever kind of software you're gonna run that runs on windows will run on them. Uh, and unless you're doing some type of uh, high-speed 3D rendering or something, uh, these uh, quad core uh, Atom based, you know, are now Intel Gen 12 based uh, uh, chipsets are completely adequate for doing that kind of stuff. So I would imagine the Dell would compare quite well with the Melee. I like the Melee's uh, ability to do compact uh, stuff, you know, because you can put actually an NVMe four terabyte drive inside this uh, and have two HDMI outputs and all the ports you need. So I'll have to take a look at Dell and uh, we'll see. But Dell, I'm sure, will be more expensive than the Chinese made. Uh, well, they're probably made in China anyway, but uh, Chinese, <laughs> Chinese made and marketed Melee computers. Next question. From Roy Myers, Bel Air, Bel Air, Bel Air, Maryland. Your current favorite external drive for a Mac. The previous recommendation of a Samsung T5 is not available. Are the T7s okay now? Good, Bill. I moved from any, I used to use those Samsungs, but when they had that problem with the T5s versus the T7 specifically for backing up my Blackmagic 6K, uh, not just backing up, but writing files to it, I switched to these uh, OWC Envoy bases. They put an NVMe card in them. And the thing I like about it is like a regular hard drive, you can increase capacity over the course of time. So I think I started out with a 500 uh, gigabyte drive and I needed a little more. So I just swapped the internal drive out to one terabyte. I think they go up to at least two terabytes, maybe more. So these are super fast. They've been reliable for me up to this point. So I've gone with that form factor rather than those old drives. Go ahead, Jason. The OWC Envoys are great. Um, my favorite for computer, not, not for recording uh, with USB-C, is the OWC Thunderblade. Uh, Thunderblade goes up to 2,800 megabytes per second. And I think Alex has the newer version of this, but it basically is just a bunch of NVMEs and you can raid them in together and they're pretty fast. Yeah, there's an M2 enclosure uh, that OWC makes that, that we really, that I like a lot. I don't have it quite, I was trying to grab onto it. It's not quite in, in reach for me for the show. Um, but but it, it, you can put four MVMEs into it. So as as far as building one, uh, that's a really it's really not very expensive to build um, a eight terabyte very very fast RAID, and you can go up to about thirty two terabytes, I think, maybe even sixty four terabytes in this little box with MVMEs. Now you can also build um, smaller MVMEs. I have a tendency to to get these. Uh, these are, and this is just like a little, it, it is a, um, if I cover my eyes, um, this is just, this comes in, in just the enclosure and then I buy the MVME separately and I build these um, for like little ones that I want to travel with. I've got a couple, a couple of those. I even got one with a, 
with a fan. So I'm not sure if the fan makes any difference, but it made me feel better when I got it. Um, so anyway, so, but uh, it turns red when it's on. It's kind of cool. So anyway, so, um, but I, I thought that it would make a difference in the in the speed, you know, because one of the problems with NVMe is they get hot and they get slow. So um, I don't know if it did or not, but I use those to capture. With these, I've been capturing 800 megs a second without any real, any issue. So that's been pretty effective. Yeah, go ahead, Jason. Yeah, one one important note about this is that oh, I am unaware of a camera that can capture directly into Thunderbolt 3. Um, USB-C, nope. right? These are all so USB-Cs. that's the important part. Yeah, these are all right. USB-Cs that are there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you're trying to capture a cam, this is for a Mac though. Yeah, so, so for a Mac, the problem with the T7s, uh, the T5s had a little bit of a problem, but the way the T7s cache can be unstable. So basically, um, they work general purpose, the T7s work great. If you start moving lots of big files or if you're writing files to them, um, you know, so from a, if you're writing from an ATEM or you're writing from a camera, we found that the T7s were not a great experience for us. Uh, next question. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana is writing. Would you consider the delay in Zoom small enough to use a large iPad for a 12-inch Interatron? Assumes you are printing the remote participant in Zoom on the iPad. And how easy is the image flipping in iOS? I don't know. I don't know how, how easy the image flipping is there. Um, the, uh, the iPad should be fine. I mean, you shouldn't have any latency, any significant latency that would make a difference there. Um, be, be, given that there's already latency in Zoom, uh, it's, it's really going to be tens of milliseconds, like low tens of milliseconds of, of delay. Um, so I, I don't think that's really that, that big of a deal. Um, I don't know how to flip the, the video in, in iOS. A lot of the teleprompter software will do it, but I don't know how to do it as a core um, solution. Go ahead, Courtney. I was just wondering in the video settings of Zoom, isn't there a mirror my image? But it only may work on yeah, but that's your video image, input, not, not output. Yeah, not the output coming from the other people. So, yeah. and it may not matter. You know, if you're just doing it in Teratron, you're just doing yeah. eye contact. Uh, they may not even we, notice that it's reversed unless they hold up something with printing on it. You know, so we've never corrected that before. <laughs> like, like, we just, like you see the person on the other side, and they are reversed, and as as Courtney said, unless there's text on them, they don't you don't see it. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I've always just used iOS software because there's plenty of teleprompter software that'll do a simple flip uh, in the iOS, but uh, same problem. Yeah, let's. Uh, yeah, it, it's. Um, yeah, let's go. To, let's go to the next question. All right, next question from Andre Duale, Berlin. Alex, any new findings regarding the Atomos Zato Connect? Uh, it doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, that's so, a finding so yeah the finding is, is I haven't tried to stream it but one. so yes yeah, so, so um uh if we are talking about um specifically if we're talking about uh the whether so it may work in other areas I haven't tested it with other things yet but what I will say is in the in the realm of uh does a USB-C camera go ver, via UVC to a computer I cannot get the I cannot get the any camera that I plugged into to pass video through it. So I don't know what's going on, but it, at least the, I have, I have higher end USB cameras. I admit, but I can't get them to go through there. So I have not been successful at making that work. Um, it may be power through. I don't know, but it's unpowering the the monitor separately. Now I haven't sent it back yet because I do want to test it with the. I, I, I'm trying to test the concept of. Um, uh, of passing the, you know, I, I want to test being able to pass just 
HDMI and stream it because it does have streaming capabilities built into the monitor. So the idea that I can put it on a camera and just stream to YouTube, I'm curious about that. Like I don't want to, I don't want to give it up until I've tested that part. Might as well do that before I send it back. But but I that's the part that I still have to take a look at. Uh, next question. Sorry. <laughs> I was in panel mode. I went into panelist mode. I just dropped into it with no warning. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that, so that. So, I'm so doing this. Over well, don't over. go away. Another, uh, <laughs> it's another question for Alex from Douglas Carmichael. Alex, you mentioned dedicating an X32 to mix minuses and comms. Does the X32 take the place of the comms base station? In that case, it does. Yeah. And, and it's not something I necessarily recommend. Like, I'm just saying that we've done it where we go, oh, well, we'll put a bunch of things in it and we have the X32 manage those things. But it does take some setup because it's doing mixed minuses. And now you're building more groups. And then there's, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not for the faint at heart <laughs> to, to, to put that together. So, um, so I, would, I, would be, uh, yeah, I would be careful of that one. Um, but, but it does work and we have done it. And we've done it on larger Dante systems as well. You basically, you're building a Dante. You can also do it in something like a BSS-806. Um, could build build all that for you probably easier than than using an X32. It's just the X32 is a lot cheaper. Uh, next question. Michael Weber, Foxborough, Massachusetts, is asking, is Starlink a viable alternative to a bonded cellular device for streaming HD in the field, looking to cover high school sports in some areas where cell coverage is low? Uh, it is... Um, I would say it's good as a, a contribution to that bonded solution, but probably not good as the as a replacement of that bonded solution. So it's actually going to produce a better, I mean, we're testing it actually at my, my parents' house in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania. And they're getting up to 100 megs a second. Now you got to get, before that, they were getting up to 1.2 megs a second. <laughs> so so, they're, so, so it, it has made a huge difference in their ability to do um work there. So, so that has been, um, it's made a massive difference there, probably more of a difference. Than that for, so I have the Starlink, the version two, and the, the upside of it was, the problem was in where my house is, it was very hard to see enough of the sky for it to be stable. Um, and also I have a pretty fast connection. I have an 800 down, 40 up. It wasn't like it was, you know, it wasn't something I needed. I went ahead and spent the extra money to have it go mobile. And when I, but again, for my at my parents' house, it was it was a huge deal because it now makes a lot of things possible that weren't possible before. <laughs> so we're trying to figure out where to fix it. Um, but what I will say is that I it still drops out. So you'll be like do 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 do, and then there's like forty seconds of nothing, and then because there's times right now where if you can't see the entire sky, one satellite's leaving its aperture while the other one isn't quite there yet. You know, like it's not dense enough yet to to, to hold it. And so um, these are getting better. It gets better every, you know, every couple months. It gets more and more stable. But I wouldn't make it the replacement because you will have gaps. Um, now, as a addition to the bonded solution, it's going to give you a much better, much more robust solution than than all the bonded um, cellular signals typically, especially if you're in a uh, high traffic area like a parade. Um, next question from Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. What's the best utility to monitor the heat index of your computer? I go ahead, Bill. I, I miss actually misread this in the beginning. I was thinking, uh, what is a device to measure the heat index? And I will say that I've seen so many of the new IR little uh, thermometers that do a good job of overall telling you if your computer is too hot. But I think he's looking for software to internally monitor it. And I'm not sure somebody like Jason or Courtney will have to figure that out. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. 
Yeah, here's what I use to measure on my little uh, uh, tiny computers is uh, from CPUID called HW Monitor. And you can see here it's monitoring. This is a Melee computer quad core. And you can see the uh, temperatures on all of the, uh, each of the cores. And it'll show you a collective temperature here. And you can have it listed out in centigrade or in, in uh, Fahrenheit. It, it, keeps track of the minimum and the maximum. So if it got over a certain degree, it'll show you and you can reset those minimums and maximums. It also shows you the clock speeds of each processor, each core. So you can see uh, that most of these cores, because I'm stressing them quite a bit by playing back these nine HD videos in the background, uh, that most of them are running at turbo speed. And when they're running at turbo speed, they're going to be uh, running uh, quite fast. And it'll also show you uh, utilization uh, up here in the processors, uh, et cetera. So uh, HW monitor from CPU ID. That's the thing that I use. It's free. A free download runs on Windows. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, and on a Mac, uh, iStat menus is a, a nice, smooth little interface. Next question. From Alexander Knight, Vancouver, British Columbia. What's the difference in nomenclature between T and F when comparing cine and non-cine lenses aperture values? What do the letters stand for? Uh, I believe uh, T. Oh, go ahead, Courtney. Well, I think the letters stand for focal length and uh, transmission. Uh, F stops is a theoretical uh, exposure value based on the aperture size, the focal length of the lens. That's a calculated value, and the T-stop is the actual measured value of the light as it's coming through the aperture on that specific lens. So lenses that are calibrated in T-stops are much more accurate uh, as a measurement of the light that's reaching the film or the sensor, and then F-stop is. F-stop's theoretical for comparison, and T-stop is actual. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, what productions have you seen Touch Designer used on versus other video tools like Resolume? Uh, I haven't personally seen Touch Designer used. <laughs> so so I, Resolume is more, more popular in, in the world. If you're comparing those two, I've definitely seen Resolume more. And, I, and I'm not, this isn't really my, my industry specifically, but in the ones that I've seen, Resolume has been more, more re readily available than, than Touch Designer. Uh, next question. Gordon Lake here in Los Angeles asks, how do you choose a good walkie-talkie for production if you have more than 10 people and a low budget? Rather own than rent. I start with the, the word Motorola. <laughs> So I've gotten lots of different belt back. You know, we, uh, you know, we've, we've used lots of different ones and you can get, here's the thing is that for a lot of less expensive, um, productions, we, I have a, uh, I have a, a bag full of some cheap ones that I bought that are probably 20 bucks a pair, 15 bucks a pair. And I have them in a bag that goes into my crikey case like, hey, if something doesn't show up or if comms don't show up, I can talk generally 500 feet without a problem. <laughs> like, like it will, it will, the, most of these little toys will work okay. And Motorola makes those toys as well. And they're for camping and stuff like that. And, and I have, they have been, I mean, 
lifesavers in production. Like, so I just want to make sure it's clear. Like, it's not like I, they haven't been useful, but they're really inexpensive and they're not super rugged. And here's the big thing is channel operations. So, so it, it's hard to change the channels on the cheaper ones. Their transmission is more sensitive. They're, they're more likely to break up. Um, they are, they usually don't have the same service supports on the side for what kind of headsets that you might want to use. And channel operation becomes really important. So on a good Motorola, you'll see someone who does this all the time and you'll see them just kind of look up while they're turning their little dial and they know where they're at. They know they're on channel six is production, channel 10 is is cameras, channel, whatever it is. They're sitting there just going, and it's very clear and it's very accurate and they can hear, they can feel those indents and they can get through those things. And so that that work, that's what you're paying for you know, when it comes to Motorola. And, and you know, stability, uh, the good battery life, uh, transmission, you know, work, working with those with these higher end Motorola. And I can't think of the, I can't off the top of my head, I can't think of the production name for the Motorola's. Um, the, the cheaper ones are not going to be that way. And then usually I throw in a couple bow fangs, which I don't know if, I don't know if technically you're supposed to use them in the United States. The transmission is like miles. Um, and so we can talk to like the hotel that we were staying at at the same time that we're there. And so usually I have a bag of those. Those are what we use as backup, but I would never use them in, I mean, I would never explain to a client why I had that in my why we were using that in the kit, you know, so some of this comes down to, you know, CYA. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, the Motorola does make a, a cheap, you know, uh, consumer radio that's the 44 bucks for a two-pack, so $22 each. The T100 talk about that uses the uh, the open uh, frequencies. They have 22 channels. Uh, they're pretty weatherproof, it looks like, and uh, pretty easy to operate. Uh, that's on the cheap side. The more expensive side that uses the uh, the higher uh, higher frequency bands, um, or actually lower frequency bands, but uh, uh, are more expensive and need to be programmed. The Motorola programmable ones that you see used on the set all the time um, are maybe about ten times as expensive. So, but if you're looking for inexpensive, these I think these little uh, ARRS. What do they call the? Um, I can't remember the name of the the citizen. Not citizens band, but it's the equivalent of the open uh, open source band uh, for transmission. It's non-licensed uh, in America. The rest of them do require licensing if you're going to use them in a commercial situation, the commercial band. But these are unlicensed. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. The good ones are also programmable. So one of the strategies that I used to use is I'd own maybe five. And then I'd make sure that the rental house near me, you said you'd rather own than rent. I'd own those five, so I didn't have to go for most of my productions. But I would want, if I needed to go to a crew of 10 or 15, to be able to go rent the additional 10 walkie-talkies so that I had a 15 uh, position thing. So those little things are things to think about. Here you go, Jason. Years and years ago, so this is another, this is a Motorola talk about. What I liked about these is I looked around, and this is the MU350R. The nice part about this one is it has Bluetooth. So you can Bluetooth pair with a headset, and it's still just, you know, a cheap UHF radio. But, um, yeah, it'll pair with a headset, and and that way you can get Vox working. You don't have to reach down and push. You, know, you don't have to use the annoying tiny little uh, adapter for a headset. Yeah, good, Courtney. Yeah, that is a good uh, a good point, Jason. Uh, the ability to plug headsets in because I I looked around on some of these Motorola talkabouts. They don't seem to have unless they're, maybe they're covered up with a port that you can open up. They don't seem to have a three point five millimeter uh, jack for a headset. I see. 
You're showing us the 3.5 millimeter jack. On it's the not 3.5 millimeter. That's the annoying oh, it's part. A it's that 5. tiny little proprietary yeah, one. Yeah. Yeah. So you'd have to have some custom headsets, but you could use it for an inner monitor. Uh, in that case, in a, in a pinch. And I, I believe that the ones that we've used in the past are the CP200Ds. Um, so those are the ones that are the um, the ones that are that we use. And they're six hundred fifteen dollars each, <laughs> so they're good. The other thing to think about is when you're buying those, of course, and and Gordon will know this. You're going to want to get that the over the shoulder so that you can attach it up 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 above as well. That makes it a lot easier to use. Um, next question. Wrapping up the hour from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, is autofocus a top reason for cho choosing Sony cameras over Blackmagic? If so, is there anything Blackmagic can do? And the answer is yes. <laughs> autofocus, is the, I, I didn't think it was that big of a deal until, I, until we, uh, I was talking to a YouTuber and asked her why she's using Sony over Blackmagic and she said, it's autofocus. <laughs> like I just and, and now that I have a Sony camera, I understand. It's just a lot easier to, to kind of think through that. So uh, I would highly recommend that if that's what you need. Autofocus is really hard. So I don't, I don't see how Blackmagic is going to fix that anytime soon. Um, so I think that it's more of a cine camera, and the cine camera doesn't require you to, to go down that path. Um, we have, uh, we're about to jump into our uh, second hour. And we're going to go ahead and jump into the second hour here. And we have uh, Kyle Urson and Eric Hyten uh, here from uh, Boomerang. And, uh, and uh, Kyle and Eric are specialists in ATA Carne usage. Kyle has an extensive background in creating custom documents for temporary exports. And Eric has traveled all over the world uh, as a cameraman with and without an ATA car Carne. Um, welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Can you describe, I, for a lot of our users, so I, a little bit of background. Um, I reached out to Boomerang because I've used Boomerang for over a decade and I don't think about anything else. I mean, I just go, okay, we're just going to get a carnet and we'll just sort this out. And when I first started, it was, um, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> you know, like, and I was sending stuff over and Boomerang was nice enough to come back and go, it's not exactly what we need. <laughs> so, so, so like, and, you know, and, then, and then I, and I'd send some more stuff over and then we'd get to the airport and we didn't know where to go and we didn't know how to, you know, what the, what are these things for? And the reason I got into doing carnets was specifically because I would sh I showed up in the Seychelles and they were like, "Where's the carnet for?" You know, I had two hundred thousand dollars worth of hardware and and um, for a, for a shoot and and we talked our way through it, but but it, it was very clear that if we had gone to a country larger than the Seychelles, we probably would not have been doing any production. So um, so that's when we started doing the research and starting to make it work, and it just became seamless for us and. Uh, ours are, were probably some of the hardest because we didn't have the same carnet that we would use over and over again. We built a carnet for every show, you know, and so everything, and we've had issues where um, they stamped the wrong page. <laughs> they, they've done the, you know, they've done a lot of other things. And so, but a lot of folks, if you haven't gone in and out of the country, um, you know, a, bu a bunch of times and needed this, and as soon as you get to a certain ratchet, you you have to have a carnet for most of these countries. Um, the, uh, if you haven't done this, you don't know what it is. And when you first do it, it becomes hard. So what I'd love to do is have one of you just describe a little bit about what a carnet is and, and why we even have carnets. Um, I'll take that one. It's a internationally recognized and accepted customs document. And the whole point is without the carnet, you show up to a country with $200,000 worth of kit. Um, you can't financially assure to that foreign customs entity that, look, this is a temporary import, these goods are going in, and they're coming back out. Once you cross their proverbial, quote unquote, customs line, 
you could turn around and sell the equipment in their country. They would be none the wiser and you'd kind of beat the system as far as the import duties and taxes go. So without the carnet or working with, you know, a customs broker on a different form of temporary import, like a one-off bond, customs would levy import duties and taxes because you're not traveling with your suitcase and, you know, uh, maybe a small point and shoot camera as well as a laptop and a thousand dollar cell phone that everybody travels with personal effects are personal effects but commercial and professional equipment uh, especially that of value is subject to import duties and taxes which can be quite hefty um, they can range up to 40 percent of the value of the goods so in your 200k example nobody wants to pay eighty thousand dollars worth of their production budget on duties and taxes for something that they know is going in and coming back out so because of the financial backing most often posted in the form of a, a surety bond that goes behind the carnet customs knows that because you have a carnet there's a guarantee in place that says look this is going in it's coming back out and if for some reason it does not you know that i have a carnet and you know that those duties and taxes are guaranteed to your your customs and and um what is the process of getting can you describe like the, the perfect process of getting a carnet First and foremost, uh, if you don't have an account with us, you would set up an account. There's no cost or anything to do that. It's it's quick and easy online, but that gives you a portal to log into. And the web-based application is pretty intuitive. It should walk you right through it, but it'll ask for things like, you know, what countries you intend on visiting, at least initially, because it is by and large a very universal document. That's one of the nice things about the Carne is it's not trip or country specific, but as Alex, you notice it is gear specific. So if you have a lot of rental or if you bring a different kit on each and every shoot, that's when you would need to get a carne. But you can also build like a master one where you list everything that you own and then piecemeal and choose what you want to bring. But it'll ask the countries. Um, you're not bound or limited to those initial countries. You can add more as you go and the the pages the the certificates aren't country specific there's just certain color ones for the origin countries customs and in my case the us and certain ones for foreign customs it doesn't say you're going to australia on there or you're going to germany on there so you can always order more certificates but in the application will ask for the countries the list of authorized representatives so if you're carrying hand carrying the goods with a crew and you're just checking it into the plane it would be all your travelers anybody that you want to give authority to handle it or if you have a very large production and you need to enlist the services of a freight forward or a shipping company to move the goods on your behalf you would list them there and then also where we're shipping it because it is currently still and has been since the early 60s a manual hard copy paper document they are working and pilot testing on the e-carnet, which is going to happen someday. But if you can imagine trying to get 90 or so countries that are a part of this system on board with both the technology and training to accept what's always been a paper document, it's definitely going to take some time. But I think what people find that the biggest task in submitting an application, especially in the production industry, is building what we call the carnet's general list. And it's kind of a deceptive term because it's not that general. It's a itemized list, each piece on its own line, things like make, model, and serial number, or any, or any other identifiers that John Smith, customs agent, being completely ignorant to the film world, can say, okay, well, this is what's listed. This is what's in front of me. I can match it up to the number. And then once that application comes in, it gets assigned to a agent, a specialist like myself or, or Eric on our UK side of things. Um, 
we practice a 24 to 48 hour turnaround time. So we, in addition to issuing the carnet, also help coach people on what should and shouldn't be listed on there, uh, any country specific requirements or restrictions. Again, it's it's really a universal system, but certain countries have weird nuances about them. We'll make sure your list looks good. We'll go through your itinerary and then we issue it and send it out the door. Then once it's in your hands, it's between you and customs at that point. And what, and what should and shouldn't you include in your carnet? I'm gonna let Eric speak to that because he is much more in tune with the production world. So Eric, do you want to take over? And I think you're still on mute. Oh, you're still on mute, Eric. There you go. There you Hello. Go. Hi. All good? Yep. Um, yeah, thank you, Carl, for that uh, very good explanation of how it all works. Um, so yeah, my particular sort of knowledge of this is, is traveling with the camera kit myself. I've been doing that for about 30, 35 years. Uh, so I've been in and out of many airports around the world, both with and without carnets. Um, and it's just a very good tool to get you through the customs point. That's the other thing about it. I mean, Carl quite rightly mentioned that, um, the carnet is this financial document that guarantees foreign customs that you're going to be good for the money if you do leave your goods in, in, the, in the country. But also, it just explains them very clearly what you're doing and how to and why you're there. So it's a very concise document that gets you through the customs point without any questions being asked, particularly. So it's good in that sense as well because it speeds things up. And you'll know that in our production world, time is critical because often you'll be landing at a country and you might have an appointment with a, I don't know, say a government minister that afternoon that you've got a set time to interview. And you do not want to be held at customs for up to four hours, as has happened to me on a couple of occasions, while they go through all the paperwork and stuff. So it's a really good document just for getting things sort of lined up for customs to see what you're doing. And as Carl mentioned also that, you know, they, as customs officers, aren't familiar with with, with a red helium camera and a set of cook prime lenses and, you know, small HD monitors and that sort of stuff. So they need to have the list, and we're talking about the, 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 the general list, which Carl mentioned, so when we coach our, our, our customers on how to prepare that list, we do make sure that the, the descriptions are good and clear. And, you know, one thing that customers really do like is a serial number. And they tend to, you know, it's, I probably twice in my career, I've had the customs officers take everything out of every case and line it up. <laughs> that's, that not, that's, that's not usual. That's not usual. It's not, right? And and have you found it like, so for us, what we, what we talk, told our our folks that go, because we have people going in and out every week of, you know, we're getting new carnets all the time. Mm -hmm. And number one is that I'm really interested in the idea of, of listing all of my gear because we were specific, like we were so, we wanted it to go so smoothly that if we changed anything in what we were doing, we were like, we're just gonna make another carnet. <laughs> like, you know, like, we're gonna, you know, like it's the very last thing we did because we didn't want to have anything on the list that wasn't there or crossed out or anything else. Um, but the, the thing that we told our, our folks on our side was we, we'd have a printout of every piece of gear with the serial numbers. This is not in the carnet and what box, what case it's in. So we, cause we might, we might be leaving in 15 cases, 23 cases, 43 cases, whatever that is. And, um, cause we would check those, <laughs> check our, our record is 40, actually 42 cases of checked baggage. Wow. Um, and, um, and so, uh, media rates is, is, a, is you can move two tons from the United States to Japan for, uh, about $1,300. And so anyway, um, the, uh, but, one of the things that we we had them do is make sure they know what case it's in. And, and if they were able to grab the first two or three things and you walked right up to the case, opened the correct case, showed it to them, 
it wasn't worth the trouble. Like they, like they knew that, oh, you, you understand it. Is that, is that it's the exactly kind that. of yeah. yeah, it's exactly that. So basically, from the customs officer's point of view, they're seeing a load of stuff coming in, they don't quite understand it. They want to do basically a quick check, and you're right. If they say, they, they'll look at the list, and generally they'll choose the most expensive items. They'll pick out a CN20 lens because it's $45,000. Right. And they'll go, wow, that's a big thing. And they'll say, show me this lens. And you're right. If you can go to a case and open up case number four, there it is. It says Canon CN20. It's got the right serial number. Customs officer looks at it, goes big tick check. He might check one more thing. That all lines up. You're good to go. And you know you're right to point out that if that doesn't go smoothly and they choose something that hasn't got the right serial number, or you take ages to find, or you haven't got, then you've got a bit of a problem because you'll have to explain why. Like most of life, um, customs yeah, exactly, is a confidence right, yeah. game. Exactly. <laughs> it's a confidence yeah, game yeah. of be- them being confident that you are you are who you exactly. are. Exactly. That you're, that you're not too shady, yeah, and you're going to be trustworthy. And you know, once they try and once they find something that's not quite adding up, then they ask questions and just starts to unravel. And you don't need that. So you know, as Carl says, and as you just reiterated, we make sure that everything in the boxes lines up and the descriptions are good and clear. So it's no good saying. And we have this with actually, it's a good idea to just discuss non-camera kit just for a moment we have maybe engineering items going out and i get a list from a customer who's going to do some maintenance on an oil pipeline or a boiler or something in kazakhstan and on the list it says a jp74928 test machine what is that right value twelve thousand dollars or thirty thousand dollars so we go back to that customer and say, well, hang on, if I'm a customs officer, how do I know what that is? Is it is right. it like a meter long? Is it 10 meters long? Is it worth a million dollars? Right. So you've got to describe it in as much as saying, well, it's yellow. It's got a sticker on the front that says this. It's got a brand name. The more description you can give it and a serial number, then they'll understand. So, you know, taking that back into our world, we have cameras. They're obviously what they are, Red Helium, Sony FS7, FX6, whatever it is. Um, and lenses are easy. And then we get into things such as small HD monitors. Now, they don't quite know what that is, but you put small HD video monitor. So they know it's a little television set. Just things like that to help them understand what you've got in your boxes. And like you say, then it all adds up. They're very happy. They'll check one, two, maybe three things. And hopefully, give you a big old stamp on the carne, and you're good to go. And then you get through, and it's it's just, yeah, that's the way to do it. How do you handle um, putting... Uh, when you so if you have a rack full of gear um, mm-hmm. uh, and you have to show them serial numbers, of course that's inside of a rack with a ton of wires on the back. Uh, how do you usually approach that? Well, again, you could say so. Let's say an outside broadcast vehicle sometimes goes aboard and everything's racked right. out in stretch. You've got the vision mixing console, you get everything there. You'd have to disassemble it and go in the back to see the cables all lined up and get the serial numbers. So you just describe it again. So right. you wouldn't just put put a, I don't know, say you've got a, a mobile editing system or something that comprises right. two flight cases, you open them up, they've got lots of things in them. Then you just describe that. And you would also say maybe containing component parts, um, audio mixer, whatever it is, and, mm-hmm. and you'd have the serial numbers. So if they really wanted to check, you could at least point to it and say that's, that's it there. And behind is the serial number, but do you really want to see that? They probably don't. Again, we, it's a credibility check. You know, what are they going to do? Like, have you there for like screwdrivers, take it apart and waste an hour of their time? It's not going to happen. Um, but be prepared if they do ask these things. And sometimes they can. And sometimes you'll get someone like I did in Australia who's got nothing else to do for four right, hours. Yeah. It's as really hard. Let's just take these guys apart. Right. And actually, the reason that happened is because it was the time of there was foot and mouth disease. 
Uh-huh. And we went into the Australia, into Australia, and they looked at our shoes, and my shoes had a little bit of grit and soil on them. And they said, "Where have you been?" And I said, "Well, UK, foot and mouth." That's why they stopped us. That's why they then took the car air apart. So it's little things wow. that wow. catch you out that just have this kind of snowball effect sometimes that get you into that system. So you want to be squeaky clean, squared away, and, and good to go. Yeah, no, absolutely. And because we we found that if if we printed serial number, like the serial, like just said S slash N colon and put the number and we'd print it on clear and put it on the front of the car, on, on the front of the, the device, they'd look at it and go, okay, that's fine. <laughs> like they, yeah. they, I mean, it, 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 and you know, so every once in a while they'd match the front one to the back one to make sure that it, but they all had them on the front of everything. So we had a rack and we'd put them all in the front. I mean, it, what, the reason I was excited to have you guys here is that like, this is a, we had these huge meetings constantly about how we were going in and out of customs, you know, because we weren't doing it the way a lot of people should do it. They were <laughs> we just put it on a, on a pallet and have it go somewhere. Like we're checking things in and out with people who have never done this before. So it was lots of lower uh, experienced production people moving through Carnets. And so now tell us a little bit about the process of the Carnets. So the first thing you do, you get to the airport and you got to find customs is not where you, it's usually the back end where people are coming out, right? Of, of customs. Exactly that. So obviously my experience is mainly leaving the UK and the car will tell you about the US side. So most of the time we'll be traveling from Heathrow or Gatwick, Central Airport. And you're right. Your first job before you check all your bags in is to go and contact customs. Reason for that? Well, if they want to check stuff, it's no good if it's already checked in and gone down the chute to the plane. They can't see it. But weirdly at Heathrow, you're correct. Most customs officers in all airports are airside because they're interested in traffic coming into the airport from foreign destinations. They're not really interested in checking what's going out of the country. So Heathrow, you have to go through the check-in area with your bags, go down a corridor, you turn right, and there's a red telephone on the wall, you pick it up, you say, hi, I've got a car now, I'm going to BA243 down to Abuja, and uh, can you come and check our car now? Most of the time I'll say, Stay, we can't because we're, we're airside, and they say, go and check your bags in, and you go, really, is that okay? They go, yeah, check your bags through. Once you've gone through security, come and see us. Basically, they're the other side of the hatch where the red phone was, and, but they just won't open the door. And then you go and see them on your air side. But, you know, again, in our world, quite often the crew will be hand-carrying, literally in, in, the, in, the, in the overheads. They'll be hand-carrying maybe a camera body, some lenses. Pretty good for us because they're the expensive things that the customs officers are likely to want to see. Right. So it's really good that you can go and show them those things, even though you've gone through security. And if they ask to see something that's actually been checked in, you say, well, you asked me to check it and I've done that. So that right. is how it tends to work at most airports. They're always airside. But the procedure is definitely, as soon as you get your carnet, you have to have it validated and stamped by customs. So as you exit either the US or exit the UK, they have to validate it by stamping it. So you have got to see customs before you fly. If you don't do that, the Carnet front cover is not stamped. When you get to your foreign destination, customs will say, well, this is not a valid document and they won't accept it. So it's crucial to do that. And um, and, it's, and and really what you're doing is building a chain of custody, right? So you're saying, I the, the country that you're leaving says they left with this. And then the country that you land in says they arrived with this. And then when you leave that country, they said they're leaving with the same gear. And when they arrive again, they say they all arrived with the same gear. So there's kind of a, it's a paperwork, paper trail that that manages that chain of custody. 
Yeah, correct. Yeah. Because from the foreign customs point of view, what they're doing is they're logging that stuff coming in. So let's say you're going into Ottawa from the UK. Canadian customs want to know that now they have, let's say, $100,000 worth of or pounds worth of equipment in the country. And they take the, the voucher out of the carnet and they put it in their filing cabinet and they keep it there. When you leave, you go to customs, you say I'm exporting and they get an exportation voucher, which tells them everything's gone. And then they look at those two vouchers, one cancels the other out there happy. If they haven't got the corresponding exportation voucher, then in the fullness of time, they'll check their filing cabinet and go, hey, do you know what? They didn't take this away. And they'll file a claim for duty and tax, which then we have to deal with. And there's ways of getting around that too. Um, so it's, all, it's important to get your carnage stamped out of the country. Cor when correctly. Reason, correctly. Right? But actually, talking about customs and where to find them, that's really, really hard. So at Heathrow, I know where they are. I've just told you where they are because I know it because I've done it so many times. If I go to, let's say, Brindisi Airport in Italy, when I'm landing there, I have to go through customs. I get my bags off the carousel. And the last thing you do before you exit and get onto the, the, onto the road outside, you go through customs. You have to. They're there waiting for you. So you say, here we are, right. customs, get your car signed in. When you come back and you're checking into Brindisi to fly home, nowhere on earth are you going to find customs without knowing where they are. Right. Right. So the top tip I always say to people is as you enter the country, when you've got customs there in front of you, you say, great, thanks very much. I'm coming back in two weeks or two days or tomorrow. When I come back, is there a phone number? Is there a name? Which door do I go to? How do I find you when I come back? And that's a really, really useful thing to do to get you ahead of the game. We, we have moved mostly virtual, so we don't do as much travel as we used to, but we got into a habit of asking every airport where Carnet, whether we were kicking, carrying gear or not, your mission for any person that we were flying anywhere was to, before you leave the airport, you got to tell me where the Carnet, where, where, I, where I'm going to process Carnets. And so they'd be like, you know, Narita is here. And they'd have this little map of this little line and, and people, everyone would, would, would be constantly researching it because we were flying all the time. And, and even without the gear, we were always worried about it because it is, as you said, it's drama, and a lot of times you're a little late, you're a little whatever, you don't have time to kind of figure out what that, you know, what that process is. But I do think what's great is you also have some videos on the website, and I think it's great because I almost made those videos after I got, I had a customs in the United States, misstamp my, my carnet, and I got to Germany, and Germany's like the worst place to land with something wrong. <laughs> so so, the, so there, I had to pull some serious strings to get my equipment in, um, you know, to to make it work. But how does it? How is it different? Um, so you're checking those things in for for Kyle. How is it different in the United States from your experience? Same thing. You just you you really got to put in the research. Uh, in addition to those videos on our website, we have a curated list of different airport slash customs maps. We don't have them for every airport in the world, but everybody fawns over them because they're just such a, a valuable resource. It says, look, it's by this door. This is the procedure. We update them as soon as we get valid information. But if for some reason we don't, and they have phone numbers on there, always right. call ahead. Always, always call ahead, especially <laughs> if you have a connecting flight. You know, if you're not leaving from LAX to fly directly out of the country and you're going LAX to JFK and you get that stickler at LAX and they see that they're not what they consider the final port of export, they might insist that you get it done at JFK. And if you could imagine all your gear being checked in, how are you reasonably supposed to 
be able to uncheck, make it through security, make it down to customs. So always put in the research and put in the time, call customs, don't rub them the wrong way, speak to them respectfully, you know, say, look, we're, we're going about this the right way. You know, I'm doing a carnet. I know I got to get this validated. You know, this is where the carnet people say your office is located. Can you confirm that that's still the case? And if, if not, you know, what do I expect when I get to the airport? You know, this is my flight day and time. What time do I show up? Logistically, how do I get down to your office? Because the last thing you want to do is be running late or scrambling and running around trying to find customs. And as Eric said, if you if you don't get your carnet validated and activated for export, it's essentially like you didn't have one. I had a, a client, it was a very sad story, actually. Um, they got their carnet stamped and signed by customs. This was a, a couple months ago. They did get it stamped, but only on the yellow exportation counterfoil, the, the trip-specific certificate that marks the exit for that one. But they didn't activate and stamp and sign the front green cover. So they got to Portugal um, and Customs said, well, yes, you have a stamp on here, but this is not a valid carnet because they never put that activation stamp on there. And they had interviews lined up with refugees the following morning. It was a small passion project documentary, very, you know, very thin budget. And they ended up, they tried to work with a customs broker to file an alter alternative bond. It was going to take three days. They didn't have that time. They were there for two days just for these interviews. They ended up having to spend $12,000 in duties and taxes because they just found a reason to reject the carnet. So while it's a wonderful tool, it does require some finesse and it does require you to put in the legwork and, and figure out where, when, and how you're going to get this validated. And, and we, if we don't happen to have one of the maps for your particular website, it's also part of our job is to coach you. We'll take you to the U.S. Customs website. There's a resource on there where you can find a phone number for any given customs office in the U.S. And the key is to to call. Sometimes easier said than done. Sometimes you got to call a few times to get somebody on the phone. But yeah, usually... And exactly what Eric said is what I always tell people when you enter the country, say, look, I'm going to be here for a week or whatever the case may be. What's my plan of attack for my exit stamp? So you know where you're going, what time you're showing up. Yeah. And uh, the one thing we definitely uh, coach a lot of folks on is for for our, our crews has always been, you know, be direct, be nice, mm -hmm. <laughs> be calm, mm -hmm. lots of eye contact. Like like these are all things that that, that don't seem like like things that you have to worry about, but it's really easy when you haven't had much sleep and you're you're trying to get to your flight to get overwhelmed and kerfluffled you know, that, about what what everything that's happening and be frustrated and that and that does not improve the speed at which you move through customs. So um, yeah, so it's 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 really important. Um, those are really important um, keys. Now, where do you cut off? Where do you go? Uh, you don't need to put this on a, on a carnet. Is there a, do you go all the way down to every little item or do you cut off at 300 bucks or $400 or where do you kind of decide that we don't need to all put this everything on? It's the million dollar question, especially in the production industry. I've had people list things down to nine millimeter rods and SD cards and, right. you know, things you don't or actually shouldn't put or can't put on a carne is anything consumable or disposable. So your zip ties, your plastic baggies, you know, double A uh, non-rechargeable batteries, um, lens cleaners, any any liquids, some gaff tape, you know, anything that's not going to be returning in the same form, fashion, quantity, volume. And as, as Eric said, usually they don't do the most detailed inspections in, in most countries. But it, to me, 
it's better to take the time and list as much as you can. Um, right. I'll let Eric chime in as far as the minutia of nuts and bolts of the production world in, in general, but you really do want to be as itemized as you can. Obviously, personal effects, you don't need to list your personal laptop or your cell phone or stuff like that. But Eric, did you want to talk maybe about the minor value yeah. production stuff? Yeah, yeah, sure. Absolutely. It is it's a question we're asked all the time. And actually, um, if I may, I'm just going to show a couple of uh, slides. Uh, if I can just do a screen share, that's okay with everybody. Yeah, it's fine. Um, so let me just get this up here and get this up here. Okay. Are we all seeing that? Uh, yep. That now slide we are. There? Yeah, okay. So, so here's a typical thing. Um, what else have we got here? This kind of stuff, right? Um, lots of small component parts that, you know, we have with us all the time. This is all for Aria Alexa Mini. Uh, this is typical of what we carry. Now, in that box there, there are a ton of tiny, tiny bits and pieces, right? So you could go through all those and you could name them and describe them. I tend to think that's not truly necessary. Some people disagree, but in my experience, I know it's not necessary to list everything. So that contains, you know, a map box and some side shot wings and some flags and kit. But you would describe that um, like, so there we go, follow focus unit. So it's got the focus rings, it's got some cables, got some little straps that go on the lenses. But that really is a fairly low value bag, a value bag of stuff. So it, I would just call that follow focus accessories. Quantity one, right. weight 0.3 kilos, value 100 pounds. Uh, so, you know, you go through things like that. And again, you've got a monitor here. The monitor is the main thing. That's going to have a serial number, but the rest of it is just the connectors to go with it. Right. Um, so, because yeah. our concern was also that we'd always be worried that we're going to list something that we don't have on the way out. And what I mean by that is it's some little bit, little wire or some little connector or something that got lost. You know, and you yeah, know the big stuff yeah. we keep track of, but if we list it, we're accountable for it. Yeah, exactly. So you want you want to have some pretty ambiguous line items on your carnet. Um, right. You know, the classic one we all know about, I think, is tools of the trade and accessories. We always put that on the end. And it has to be fairly low value. So, you know, if you have an item at the end of your list that says tools of the trade and accessories, and you can have a couple of those. You might have the sound recorders on your carnet. You might have the sound kit. You might have a, you know, first ACs kit as well. And they can each have their tools and accessories. So right. if you have that tools and accessories line value, let's say maximum $200, so it's not going to flag up yeah. anything. And that's where you'll put things like your Leatherman, some more connectors, some lens wipes and bits and stuff like that. And also, if you've forgotten something small that's not on your carne, put it in your kit bag, and if they ask what it is, well, that's in the tools of the trade. But right. you couldn't say, oh, do you know what? I want to take a set of ARRI CP2 primes, value like right. 30 grand. I'll put that in the line tools of the trade. That's not going to work, right? But, you know, small stuff you can get away with. And you'd also have a line which would say things like HDMI connecting cables, quantity 10, value $10, make it small. So, you know, no one's going to worry if you come back with nine of those because right. they're not worth right. anything. There's a threshold below which it will not be worth customs saying, okay, we're going to charge you duty on that item. Yeah. Um, so you want to have some little wiggle room in your carnets um, for, that, for that reason. And I think that's a perfect lead-in to the on-deck question here about when is it necessary to have a carnet in general? If the, in this example, someone said I'm traveling to Canada with a collection well, of... Why don't we go ahead, we'll have, have read it out. Um, go ahead, Eric. 
from Andy Korkendorfer in Vieira, Florida. He's asking this very question. I am traveling to Canada with a collection of Zoom gear for a lecture. Do I need a carnet to get into Canada and back into the U.S.? Value is less than $2,000. And Kyle, I know that you didn't raise your hand there, but go ahead and uh, answer that. Yeah, sorry. Um, it's It's... Just a perfect lead-in because you don't ever have to have a carnet. There is no magical number. Um, I think my record, I issued a carnet for a $20 value. <laughs> it was a empty fire extinguisher for Lockheed Martin. And why they put it on a carnet is beyond me. It's kind of a compliance thing. But I've seen people, a lot of times with these lower values, people justify the carnet because of, for one, you could get charged, it handles both sides of the coin, both the entry into Canada, and then sometimes half the battle, if not more, is getting it back home and, and through U.S. Customs. So you defer the duty and tax both entering into Canada as well as coming back into the U.S. And then also, if you're, you know, it's valid for one year from the date of issue, and the more you use it, the more economical it becomes. I've got people that travel 20 times uh, with a carnet throughout a year. So there's Never a, a way to say you need to have a carnet, but just the ease of which you pass through customs. It's almost like an easy pass. You know, they see your carnet, they may or may not look at a couple items, they stamp and send you on your way instead of sitting there and trying to explain your way out of it and say, oh, well, I didn't know it's low value stuff. You know, it's it takes all the stress out. Exactly. You know, I I know that every time I I go to a country that I have to shoot in that doesn't have a car, isn't part of the carnet system, it's just. It's a lot of stress. <laughs> like you just, you get there and you're just not sure what's going to happen. And, and you're making tons and tons of phone calls trying to figure out what are the rules. Like in Ecuador, you have to send an invoice of the gear that you had, even though you'd already bought it. It was like, there's this weird paperwork thing that you have to create to, to, to get in and out. Um, and you end up hiring a fixer to solve a lot of those things in, in country. And it's just so chaotic um, that, that it's, a, it's really hard. And John, I know you, before we get, jump out of this, I know that you had a more general question. I, I had a very, very general question. I'm trying to determine the relationship between Eric's company, Media, Carnet, and Boomerang. Okay, I can answer that. Yeah. So Media Carnets is my sort of brand, if you like, for uh, helping people out in the media industry. So it's a bespoke service. So when we service our clients, mainly in the Bristol production area in London, um, they tend to come to media carnets because they get the expertise that I have and I have that knowledge of their world and I can talk to them about their own um, plans and I've traveled. So that's what we do. Uh, the carnets are still fulfilled by Boomerang Carnets. So I apply for the carnets on behalf of the people, but using the Boomerang Carnets system. So it's still very much a Boomerang Carnets carnet, but the front end of it is a brand thing, if you like, and a point of contact that comes to me and my people here who deal with the media side. And we, we do a very good bespoke service and we, we will hand deliver carnets sometimes. And we're right in the hub. For instance, our Bristol office is actually inside one of the biggest rental houses in Bristol that serves all the natural history productions for netflix for disney for prime and the bbc so we're really in the heart of it so we can see the rental kit being prepared and we can also prepare the carne alongside it at the same time so that's that's really why media carnies are so beneficial um but the relationship is just with the same thing with the same people yeah, and I think that as I got started, I probably would have had a specialist to work with us on it. Uh, it was, we built, I don't know where we went before we went to Boomerang, but it was definitely a super stressful, painful process that that we just barely survived when we did it. And it was, you know, and uh, 
Uh, and, you know, once we got to, I know for us, once we got to Boomerang, we had already gone through a couple carne processes that were really painful and it got a lot easier. But having someone that really knows your industry and being able to do that is is really great. Uh, Courtney, I think you had a follow-up question for this, uh, for the first question there. Yeah, specifically on the Canada thing, because I've, I've done work in Canada and uh, run into problems with immigration because of work permits. And so if you have a carne and you're listing a bunch of equipment as, as you know, production equipment, business equipment, uh, then they're going to ask you, well, what are you working on? And it, then if you're saying, You well, can't say vacation. Yeah, you can't say <laughs> vacation. This is my personal <laughs> equipment. And so there's a fine line that there's a certain amount of equipment that you can get in. It's just personal equipment. And, and in this example, you know, if you're taking stuff for a Zoom meeting, it could be considered, you know, a, a still camera and a microphone. And, you know, it's just... But I want my personal equipment that I travel around as a tourist. You know, they may not think twice about it. But if you say it's business equipment and you have a carnet, they're going to ask you to get a uh, work permit. And you, then you have to go through immigration. You have to prove, you know, you have to have letters from the people that you're working for. They only, you can only stay in the current country a number of days, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in that case, the carnet may work against you if you want to just visit a couple of days and then well, get out again. And, and to the point for, 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 uh, for you, um, What's our, for, for, the, for, the, for our, our experts here, uh, it does change the way you have to handle your visas, right? I mean, like you're saying, when you have a carnet, you're saying I'm bringing, I guess, I mean, we've always assumed that we have to have a work visa if we're bringing a carnet in, but technically you could say I'm just bringing this gear in. But when you start bringing a bunch of Pelican cases in, it does bring up a couple questions. <laughs> so I, I have some experience with that too. Um, the Canada thing, you're right. Canada HR are very, very hot on this and they do not like people coming in. And I had a, shoot that I was based in northern Montana up at Glacier National Park and every day I was driving across the border into Alberta with my car. Now I did have a work permit but it was very very hard to get and you know I would not recommend flagging that up so so you're right if your value is as little as two thousand dollars then going to Canada I would rec you know Carne is definitely the way to go if, if you can do it and you get the permit but there's a very good chance you'll get in under the wire so to speak with just a zoom recorder and a few bits of personal gear you know, people phone me and say, well, look, I've got my sales camera, DSLR, and I've got some fancy lenses. And very quickly, even as a keen amateur, you're going beyond the threshold of what would be considered carne. And it's not just the dollar value, but it's the fact that from customer's point of view, again, you could be taking this into their country and selling it on the black market and not paying tax and duty. So I think if you can just convince customers that it's my DSLR, my Zoom recorder, I've got a couple of mics, I'm going to film some, I'm going to go do some like sound recording of birds, whatever it is, then, you know, you could, you probably will get away with it, but it is that negotiating thing that you're into and just convincing customs that you are what you say you are. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've spent a couple hours in Canada by not being totally straight. It's difficult. <laughs> <laughs> to talk into I, was, I was nearly sent home. I couldn't believe it. I nearly had to go home again. And I done all the hoops and I, I got a special contact, a guy called Darcy Warner at the airport when we got there flying in and everything was squared away. I talked to him on the phone from the UK about five times. The production <laughs> company, the BBC had done it. And yet when I got there at two in the morning, my producer was waiting for me outside the airport. Darcy said, you know what? I'm really sorry. I don't think you can come in. And we just had to really hash it out. It's very tricky, Canada, yeah. Be no, absolutely. Uh, next question. Well, I have a question from here in Los Angeles. At what point do you know production is large enough to need a carnet? And I think you kind of covered that a little bit in the sense that it's um, when you want to stop thinking about it. <laughs> Is that is that about the right? Um, Kyle, do you want to take that one? 
Yeah, it, I, I think we did kind of kind of cover it, but there's just unfortunately not a magical number. It is usually, you know, people do travel with a small point and shoot camera. You can say I'm a I'm a hobbyist. I happen to have some prosumer grade equipment. I'm on vacation. I'm here. I'm going to take some pictures and some video for, you know, just just my own you know, enjoyment, my own practice. Um, and, and you can, you, you can, you can get through. You just, unfortunately, it sounds like such a cop-out answer. You don't know who you're going to get in customs until you get there. You know, you could have that one guy who says, yeah, no, not a problem. Or you could have that one guy who wants to match up each and every serial number and says, you know, questions everything, you know, just based on the mood they're in that day. And as unfortunate as that sounds, it, it's the case, you know, they're kind of the gatekeepers. They say, jump, you say, how high, sir. <laughs> um, but I would say once you start carrying Pelican cases and stuff like that, that not an average hobbyist would would carry is when it's always a better idea to have a carnet. I mean, if you're carrying just one small little camera and even maybe a, a, a nice lens, that could be posed as as personal equipment. But when you start wheeling cases behind you, you've got light stands, you've got tripods, you've got you know, all sorts of stuff like that. That's usually when you're going to get tipped off. Next question. From Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. He's wondering, what is the time limit for entering, exiting various countries with your gear? Good, Kyle. And I raised my hand on that one because I'm I'm wondering, there's, there's a couple ways to look at that question. It's an interesting posed question because the validity of the document itself is is always 12 months from the date of issue so your carnet and your bond are good at least with the u.s issued bond it's always valid for 12 months so you can come and go as you please to various different countries you might have to order some additional certificates if you need to make future trips but uh, the carnet itself is valid for 12 months now certain countries most countries will allow you to stay for that full 12 months one on any given entry so if you've got an extended production and you are shipping you know half a million or a million dollars worth of camera equipment over to a country that you know is going to be in there for 10 12 months most countries will allow for that certain countries though do have a little bit stricter of on any one given entry how long they want you to be there at a time. Perfect example is India. Uh, prior to 2019, actually, India did not accept carnets under the classification of professional equipment, which of course camera uh, gear falls under. They were only signatory to the convention of exhibitions and fairs. So for like trade shows, special events, I mean, if you were working with a fixer, usually they can get you through with camera gear. You say you're here for XYZ event to film it and you're not carrying a trade show booth under your arms, but you are there for an event. So they're kind of loosely defined. But once they signed on to the professional equipment convention, they have a caveat that on any one given entry, they limit to a two-month import length. Now, you can ask for an extension. They will honor one extension up to another two months, but the total you'll have in India with your camera gear is, is four months at a time. Mexico, for instance, they limit to a six-month import. Again, you could go there 20 times for a week at a time throughout the year of the Carnet's validity, but on any one given import, they don't want you there longer than six months at a time. Most of these countries that do limit... They will accept or honor uh, extensions. In Mexico's case, I almost wish they said they didn't honor them because it's a very, very tedious, to say the least, process. And, and sometimes it doesn't go through correctly. But 
by and large, uh, most countries will allow you for the full 12 months. And I, I hope I'm answering that question correctly. Yeah, no, I think it's a really good detailed detailed answer um, for, for that. Because I know that I think some of the reasons they're trying to do that is to keep people from doing, in some cases, we've done things where we needed to keep it there for a long time and we took it out for a week and brought it back. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. You know, like in over two, so then that's two years of it sitting there. Um, and, and would you suggest um, if you're, so what happens, you bring something in on Carnet, and then the client says, or the person, your partner says, hey, I'd really like to keep this equipment. Is the best thing to do is to take it out and then <laughs> bring it back in? I mean, you know, like it's rather than trying to change the carnet. Like what's the, what's the best way if you decide you want to keep the qu- equipment in the in-country, what's the best process? Permanently, you mean? Yeah. Like so, you're working with someone and they're like, I really want to keep that thing or yeah. I really, or I'd really, or you've realized you really need to keep it here for a long time. Is it better to take it out and then just bring it in properly? Or is it better, or is there a way to negotiate like, Hey, we brought this on a carnet, but we're going to, we're going to leave it here. Well, first quick answer is that most, if you're leaving it there longer than the 12 months, but you know, it's not permanently, permanently staying there. Most countries will accept a quote unquote extension carnet. It's called a replacement carnet. Mm-hmm. It's used to extend the stay, usually up to another 12 months. Um, in the foreign country, I've seen people get two or three replacements. So three, four years at a time. Right. That's on a case by case basis, of course. But if you know it's for sure permanently staying there, one of the nice things about the carne is you do not need to bring it back out and then file it as a permanent import coming back in, especially with freight costs. If it's you know right. going with the freight forwarder, what freight costs are nowadays um, post pandemic. But there is a way to break that liability and approach customs and say, okay, this was initially brought in as a temporary import. It came in under a carnet, it came in under a bond, but now it's going to remain in country. Of course, duties and taxes would be levied at that point, right. but there's a way to do that without re-exporting and re-importing. It happens a lot in... Uh, not so much in the production world, but in like the commercial samples world. If you're a jeweler, right, and you're going to a trunk show in Italy and you've got a hundred pieces of fine, uh, precious jewelry and your intent is you hope they all sell at the show. Right. Well, reality is maybe half do and half don't. You use the carnet to, as a tool to defer the duty and tax on anything that does come back out. Oh, that's great. That's, I definitely, that's new for me. <laughs> Next question. From Vincent Alvarez, uh, Bellington, Washington. What happens if you were to lose a very expensive piece of equipment in the foreign country, say at the bottom of a lake or a bigger than planned explosion? Would the carnet have to pay then upon exit? Go ahead, Eric. Uh, yes, strictly speaking, you do. And this is quite a brutal thing. So not only have you lost your camera or lens or your drone, but you've now also got to pay the import duty and tax on it because as far as customs are concerned, it's in their country. And I think the exception is if you can prove that it's been destroyed, if you have evidence that it's burnt or you've got the thing that's wrecked and it's just a piece of charred mess, then even then you bring that back to customs to show it to them because you're exporting it. But if you physically don't have the item, I have a drone sitting at the bottom of the Hudson River, for instance, on a carnet that we took out three years ago. And we just had to say to customs, it's not here. It just got dished in the river and we had to pay the export. Well, we didn't actually. They didn't They didn't charge us because at the end of the day, they're, they're the customs officers as you exit uh, New York. And he just said, well, it's fine. Don't worry about it. And that's, that was at his discretion. It wasn't a high value drone. It was a small sort of, you know, it wasn't even a... I can't remember. It's a small thing. It's like, you know, maybe $2,000 worth. And they, they just right. thought it wasn't worth the hassle. So, but yeah, if you've got something bigger than that, 
you are going to have to pay the tax and duty on it unless you can prove it's been destroyed, which is quite hard. Do you know if, if does insurance typically cover uh, those kinds of the extra duty that might be have to be paid if if you have loss? Not usually. It'll pay for the hardware. Yeah, I was having a conversation like this this morning with the camera crew because I think one thing that people sometimes don't quite understand about the security bond is that you put the security bond up and Kyle, tell me if I'm wrong on this, but I think, you know, our underwriters will pay that out, but only if you, the holder, can't pay it first. So you as a holder are still liable for the import duty and taxes. They come to you first. Um, if you aren't able to pay because your business has gone bust or something you're not around anymore, then there's that real backup guarantee that the security bond will pay out and the underwriters will pay the money. So it's important to understand that. And, and therefore, I was talking to this cameraman today and suggesting that if he was worried about that, he could go to his insurance broker, the people that insure his own equipment for loss and damage, and maybe ask them to tack on a policy for up to £20,000 worth of import duty. Right. Should it become payable? And I think it's 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 very unlikely to happen because the equipment we travel with, we're going to look after. You know, we, we take great care of our camera equipment and we make sure we know where it is. We don't leave it lying around and get lost. So the chances of it getting lost or destroyed are pretty slim, actually. So I think it's probably over worrying about it, really. Right. Absolutely. Next question. From Roscoe Jones in Indi- uh, Indiana, Madison. If this is still a paper document, what happens if it is lost, stolen, or destroyed? Good, Kyle. Yep, I've heard everything under the sun. They've fallen off the side of boats. They've gotten left on planes. Someone's child threw it in their family fire, and we got a half-burnt carne back in our office. Uh, it is it is a paper, and it's it's limited to that. But within the first 12 months, if it's lost, stolen, or destroyed, you can apply for what's called a duplicate carne. It's a, not a new bond. That bond is an electronic bond that carries over. So you don't have to pay the new bond premium again. It's just a new set of paperwork. And there's a cover letter that's attached to it that explains, okay, this is the original carne number. It was lost. This is the one that replaces it. It's the same Carne number, but it ends in a slash S1. So it stands for substitute one. But you essentially just get a duplicate and you continue on from there. And, and what happens though if you're, you're halfway through it? So the, you, you've got a certificate that's been stamped. You got to the other country, you, un, you, you had it stamped on the entry, and mm-hmm. then you lost it in the other country. And then you're asking exactly. for a replacement. That, get, that gets complicated. Exactly. It, it, it does. And sometimes I've seen customs uh, ask questions about it, but you don't need to go obviously retrace your steps and get all the import and export stamps. Obviously, those moves have already happened. But what does need to happen is it still needs to be activated and stamped and signed on the front green cover page by U.S. or whatever the origin country's customs is. So right. we actually offer a service um, where we can run it down to customs for you and have that activation stamp taken care of. And then we send it directly to you over overseas to marry up with you. And again, it's got that cover letter explaining, okay, this is the situation. The first one was lost. This is a a duplicate to replace that. And it still has been activated by U.S. Customs. So it's still a valid carne because that front stamp is on there. You go ahead, Courtney, real quick. And does it help to take a picture of it after it's been stamped and and you enter in the country? So you have some kind of proof that it was stamped and did enter the country? 100%. I always recommend take pictures, make scans at every point in the process. When you get it, before you take it out, once it's stamped on the U.S. side, once it's stamped on the foreign side, because you have that at least digital paper trail, so to speak, of, of what happened with the customs validations. Next question. 
from Douglas Carmichael. When relocating to another country, do you have to pay import duty bringing your own equipment in or is there a similar process for duty exemption? It's more of a customs question mm-hmm. than a Carnet question, I think. But it's um, if you're moving and you already owned all this equipment, do you have to pay the duty to bring it in? There, I, I know of one instance where a client relocated to the UK. They they used a U.S. Carnet, moved the uh, traveled to the UK, fell in love, and got married and became a UK citizen. And he was working with a broker to file some sort of an exemption. Now it's outside of our realm of expertise, um, but I'm not sure if it's it's a full duty exemption or not. But there are you know, things for nationalizing goods, but sometimes you do still have to pay the duty and tax. Next question. Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas is asking, how does boomeranging gear to Canada differ from other countries? Eric, do you want to take that one? Yeah. Uh, it doesn't really. You can still take equipment from you know, um, the US to Canada on a carne. You can go from the UK to Canada on a carne. Um, so there's no major difference involved, except as we mentioned before, it does flag up the need for a work permit, um, which Canada is very, very hot on. So be aware of that. Um, and don't just expect you can just walk in to Canada with a carne and other filming equipment because questions will be asked more about your reasons for being there than, than the actual carne itself. Are there certain countries that you think are more sticklers than others? Do you do you find that it it flexes back and forth? Uh, as Kyle said, it really depends on who you see on that particular day. I mean, mm-hmm. we're having a lot of issues with French customs post Brexit. Interesting. They also have friends, and honestly, sometimes it is blatantly vindictive. Honestly, they're huh. just being difficult. And they fine you. They get poor guys coming saying, oh, we've been fined 150 euros for incorrect paperwork for no reason. And other right. times they let you through. So they're, they're, I don't think there's anything country specific. China's, China's difficult, but then China is, you know, for all sorts of regulatory reasons. Um, right. Yeah, I, you know, Pakistan was difficult because, again, they did not understand the Kane system. So they're scratching their heads. A lot of times wondering they, what to do with it. You know? we, found, we found that to be the case. So you go into a country that, Maybe that airport or that person, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't hasn't seen a carne in a long time. You know, um, uh, we find that for some reason in Japan, in Arita, we found that it was it was always like, oh, we have to figure this out. <laughs> like, you know, someone would come over and they'd look at it and try to figure this out. Whereas like Switzerland and 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 uh, in the Netherlands, they barely un- cared whether you had one or not. <laughs> like, it was just kind of yeah. like, yeah, whatever, you know, like we'll, we'll pass this through. They never wanted to look at anything. They just want to keep you going, you know, through the system. And um, yeah. but. Again. Well, that's that's an interesting point. There's also been times when I've been, and this happened in America. I, I think it was Denver. I can't remember. It was a while ago. And they basically, you go to the, to the customs desk and they say, oh, no, 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 you don't need that. That's fine. You can go through. And I say, actually, no, I do need this because yeah. my con. No, 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 you don't need that. You can go through. Because they don't care. They don't want to do it, right? And funnily enough, I managed to get this lady to actually stamp my carnet into Denver. And she said to her colleague, she said, Margaret, file that in the 411. And she took the carnet away. And I said, What's the four one one? And she said, "It's the shredder." And I oh, think no. that was Denver. <laughs> I mean, it's the plate. So there yeah, are all yeah. sorts of people who who look after carnies a different way. But it's well, fine I, from our point of view. I had the carnies stamped. I didn't really care. You know, that's that's fine. Well, and, and I think it's important for us to know exactly what what the process was. I know that I I, I mentioned that before in Germany. I had to, you know, I landed in Berlin. I had a, I had a, the, the, the officer in the United States had stamped the wrong page and I hadn't paid attention to it. And I've done a lot of them. I just didn't get it right. 
you know, we had to make phone calls. <laughs> you know, like German German customs was not going to allow that through uh, through the system. So it was. So you do have to kind of. We have to know as the person leaving the country what it. You know how how this actually works. That's one of the reasons I want to bring you guys on is to make sure that people understand that there's those resources out there to do that. But you have to. It's not just them. Like you have to be. You have to know because like if they don't want to stamp it on the way out, well, you're going to get to the other side and they're not going to. <laughs> the, 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 they're going to want it on the other be, side. You, you'll be the one coaching the customs officer on what to do very carefully and tactfully, but if you can guide them the right way, then that's that's helping them out. We've done that many times. Like, oh, no, no, that's not the page. <laughs> this is the page you want to stamp. You need, you need this part here. Uh, next question. From Douglas Carmichael, for a very large shipment, like a major tour, is the copy of the carnet attached to each case, or is there some master file that is set in advance to the destination country? Good I think, think that's a great question. Um, there's only one copy of the carnet. I mean, we always recommend you guys carry copies or, or make copies just to have that record. But unless you get a duplicate, there's only the original one hard copy. So usually what happens with a large shipment, like a, we issue carnets for statewide orchestras, tens of millions of dollars worth of uh, equipment on carnet. Obviously, nobody's going to hand carry that. It's going with a freight forwarder. What usually an export uh, experienced shipping company will do is they'll bring all the freight to the port, whether it's going by air cargo or going on a vessel by sea. Um, They'll present the carnet, they'll present the freight. If they want to do an inspection, they do their inspection. They'll get the carnet validated by U.S. Customs, then put the equipment on the plane or on the boat. Do not send the carnet in a shipping pouch just slapped to the side of the crate because it's just going to get lost. Again, it's a paper document. So they'll courier then the original carnet to their counterpart, be it their company or their partner company or their customs broker in France, who's then got the carnet in hand, waiting for the freight to arrive and then clear it in. Usually you don't want to send the carnet with it and there's not, you know, multiple copies of it. And another company we may bring on at some point that manages that for us is Rocket. <laughs> so, yeah. so Rocket is the is They're the one that we... Entertainment industry. Yeah, yeah. So I was I was at a place called Rocket and Rocket has a... Their whole whole space there, just 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 to get stuff in and out of the country, so, uh, but or to ship things, and and I will say that once you get to a certain level, um, I would just use someone like that to get it in and out, not not try to do it yourself. Um, next question from Bill Davis from San Diego, and here on the panel, are there destination countries that are problematic and want under the table consideration to approve things? Oh, it's- so I would never recommend the under-the-table approach. Yeah. I think you're going to get into massive problems. I haven't come across that. The, the place I almost came across it was, again, with all due respect to the guys, because they were absolutely brilliant in the end, was going into Lahore in Pakistan. And they accepted the carne, and that was fine. But he said, I also need a cash deposit. And when you hear the words cash deposit, you think, well, what's this about? But we negotiated with him. And he was a uniformed officer. He was absolutely fine. And I think we gave him something like maybe $500, which he put in an envelope and put in his desk. And we were on our way. And we thought, we're never going to see that again. But three weeks later, when we came back, we'd gone through the carnet process. The same guy came out and said, oh, excuse me, gentlemen. Wait, wait, wait. Here's your money back. And he gave us the envelope with all $500. So... I don't know what that was about, but that's the closest right. I've come to ever thinking I've been asked to give something under the table, but I would never offer it. I think that could be very, very problematic. 
Yeah, absolutely. I've never had to do that, <laughs> you know, in, in a lot of different countries. Because usually once you're in that position, their job is worth way more to them than it is, than any chance of losing that job, you know, to, to one of those things. Um, next question. From Jason Beige, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and here on the panel, while I assume it's not necessary, do diplomats use carnets to transport equipment for their use abroad? Do you know if diplomats do that? I don't really, I imagine they don't, but uh, I, I don't Usually know the there's, there's immunities or exemptions in place for stuff like that, but we do do carnets for government entities, um, you know, DOEs, um, you know, federally, fully federally funded entities because they still need to bring stuff abroad. Um, as far as diplomats themselves, I've, I've seen people travel with diplomats um, and they have a carnet for their stuff, but oftentimes there seems to be some sort of exemption or immunity for that. Fantastic. Uh, Kyle and Eric, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you coming on the show. It's, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been, it's, it's so key. And, uh, you know, I, I, there's people that are watching right now that probably didn't know what a carnet was when we started the conversation. And you may not need one for the next year or two, but you'll come back. Just, just, just flag this, this conversation <laughs> so that you can watch it again when you actually have to start taking gear out of the country. So, uh, yeah, I just think it's, it was such a nightmare when we got started. And again, uh, the reason we reached out to Boomerang was because uh, they made it a lot easier. And uh, we used them uh, probably on a weekly basis for years. So, uh, so really, really uh, great experience. Um, thanks to the, the producers for all those great questions, uh, asking all the questions that we had here today. Uh, we can't do this without your questions, so get those questions in early every day. Uh, for We're going to have uh, accessibility tomorrow. We're going to be talking about brainstorming about accessibility tomorrow. Um, so uh, so that so take, take, think about those kinds of what you might want to see more of in those accessibility issues. Um, and uh, thanks to the panelists. We can't do this without you either. Uh, great, great first hour and second hour with all of you. And thanks to the incredible crew. We've got people all over the world that that light up every day, a small village to get this show done. Um, we've got the development team, the, the management team and the, and the production teams that are making all of this possible. And we really appreciate all of your uh, contributions. Uh, we traveled uh, 62,000 miles. That's uh, 100,000 kilometers today answering these questions. And that is um, 495 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. So thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, everybody. Do you need a carnet for those bananas? <laughs> that many? That yes. would be a carnet out of auto. Yeah, with, with, with <laughs> 195 million, I think we'd have to file a carnet. <laughs> <laughs>